Josh, thanks for coming out, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. I know. Um, so you're in town for the uh, TAC for yeah. Total Archer Challenge. Yep. What is you guys is how long you've been doing the the TAC thing for the events? Actually setting up a booth. You know, we did it last year. Uh, we did Park City, and last year they had one at Snowbird. They don't this year, and and Big Sky Montana. So, kind of doing the same thing this year. Just these ones out west here uh how with how fast stuff of ours has been, kind of been moving we haven't had much for stock available so it hasn't made sense to try to get all over the country yet till we catch up yeah i think i mean obviously as an entrepreneur i look at different businesses that we work with that we partner with and knives uh, the first time that we ever got deleted off facebook was because of a knife you know, we had, it was a Colonel Blade from, at the time, um, BCM was working with Colonel Blades and we had a relationship with Bravo Company Manufacturing. And then we put, I don't even think I, we were selling the knives, but we just put up like, Hey, these are going to be back in stock soon. It wasn't like, Hey, click the link, buy this now. Yeah. And Facebook deleted, well, they, they, they restricted all ads and basically suppressed overtly telling us that we can't do anything with knives. Yeah. Yeah, we we can't buy a Facebook ad. We can't we can't boost an Instagram post. Um it's actually pretty incredible how much we've grown in 2 years with zero ad spend. Yeah. Like it's and it's uh we've kind of had to hack the system and uh you know it's 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 actually been it's been an interesting kind of time with the marketing stuff, but um Honestly, we try to use it kind of to our advantage too, and kind of point out the hypocrisy and a bunch of that stuff with social media. And um, it's crazy what they'll allow, what you can find on the internet. Oh yeah, yeah. And what they don't allow. How did you get in the knife space from the very beginning? Like, how did that start for you? Uh, I, I I grew up in Lincoln, Montana. It's a small logging town. Um, super small. Up in the mountains. Yeah. Yeah. Super small, and uh, right on the edge of the Bob Marsh Wilderness, and. I was a little league baseball player. I was 11 and my coach, um, ex air force guy, he would bring his knives to practice and show the parents. And he was just making hunting knives. And quite honestly, kind of at that time, they were, they weren't the greatest knives. I mean, he was kind of learning himself. Mm. Um, but I was a kid and you know, I was 11, I hunted and there's knives. Like I was stoked, you know? And so my parents actually brought, bought me one of his knives for Christmas that year. And then right after Christmas, he invited me up to make one. Oh, and uh, you know, he's pretty, uh, still great friends today, mentor today, but he, he's pretty direct guy. And he was like, I made one or two up there. And then he was like, you want to be a knife maker? You got to make them on your own. And so I, I had a lawn mowing business and my parents also owned an excavation business. And so I took the money I was making from that stuff. And I started buying knife equipment and putting it in my dad's shop. And pretty quickly, he kicked me out of his shop because I was making, <laughs> making a mess, you know, mm -hmm. grinding dust and He's like, we got to have a shop for you. So we enclosed this a little lean-to, uninsulated little 10 by 10 lean-to area room. And uh, eventually had to add on to the lean-to when I started buying too much equipment through high school. Um, but yeah, I was a kid and, and he was great. He hauled me around to knife shows. My parents didn't make, make knives or do any of that um, or hunt. Uh, but uh, yeah, he was a great mentor and hauled me around all over. I turned 13 at the Eugene, Oregon knife show and... Do the blade show in Atlanta and every wow. year in New York City and Paris and yeah, it was pretty cool. Um, I became the youngest journeyman knife maker in the world when I was fifteen. Wow! 
and the youngest master bladesmith in the world when I was 19. Wow. So I, I kind of, and, and I say that not to brag, but more to, the point is, is like, I went at it pretty hard. From the know? very beginning. Yeah. I made knives before school, after school. Um, and honestly, I look back on it a lot of times. I, I got frustrated, wanted to quit at times. Cause like I was trying to get approval from all these older guys. That time I thought they were old. They were probably 30, but, uh, <laughs> uh, man, I could just never get like, Hey, good job. That one's great. Yeah. It was always like, it's all right, but I could do this better and that better. And I just kept going and I was probably about 30 by the time I got to like, Hey, that's a nice damn knife. <laughs> Is that something that you think you figured out and then so it actually was? Or do you think you had already probably met that objective, but nobody was just giving you the credit for it? No, I, you know, it's interesting because I, I got really lucky that I got involved with the guys that I did because I, I could have been gotten involved with just, um, you know, lean to shop knife maker hobby guys that didn't take it serious. But as it turns out, I just happened to get involved with guys who were about to take off on a rocket ship themselves of, oh. of learning and, and becoming nationally recognized knife makers themselves 10, 15 years later. And I was like kind of on their coattails on the way up and we were all learning and I was just kind of a step behind them all the time. Mm. But you know, so the, st- the bar ne- the bar kept moving. Like I'd meet the bar, but then all of a sudden the damn bar wasn't there anymore. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, I just, so I kept chasing that. I was chasing them. And frankly, they were chasing guys who were 50 and 60 years old that were teaching them, mm. you know, or, you know, mentors they were looking up to. And it's interesting back then, that was the nineties. There was no internet. There was no YouTube. Mm. If you wanted to make knives, you had to go to somebody's shop. Um, you know, and you had a lot of trial and error too. Like you couldn't just get on YouTube and find the answer. Mm-hmm. Like, Oh, I wonder about this. Start trying. it. Um, I traveled when I was 15. I flew standby across the country to go spend a week with a knife maker. His name was George Heron, since passed away. But I spent a week in his shop on the other side of the country. No cell phone. My parents put me on a plane with a standby ticket. Took me two days to get there. Made knives for a week. Flew home, you know, called them once or twice, you know, while I was there. But, uh, like, you look at now with how connected we are. Yeah. I'd go up to Rick's shop and make knives up there for a whole day and... They didn't know what was going on really, but I mean, I had great parents. They were supportive, but they all, I was a good kid. I mean, I was, I don't think Rick would have had, Rick was no bullshit. So yeah, he wasn't going to have a pecker head in his shop. Yeah. Um, I feel like old knife makers are like the toughest human beings to uh, impress, yeah. to get affirmation from. He was an old, you know, dog trainer, uh, no bullshit. Like he would just threaten you with your life basically right off the bat. And <laughs> And then you just, I was, you know, you just get it out of the way, scared of him, but also wanted to be like him. So, yeah. um, no, it was awesome. And, and, and I really did like, it's interesting. I, the, the, I, I got a lot of notoriety back in those days in magazines and stuff about passing those tests. And you look back now, um, and was I a master bladesmith at 19? Absolutely not. Like I passed the test, you know, it, it'd be like coming through buds. Yeah. Like, are you a Navy SEAL at that point? I guess technically. Yeah. But dudes that have been in 15 years probably don't think so. Yeah. Right? They don't have the experience, the right. context. Yeah. And, and you know, you, I really feel like when you pass that test, that really means you're good enough at that point to really like absorb more knowledge and, and really start to expand what you're doing. And, you know, if my knives would have never gotten any better from that day on, like, 
you nobody would know who I was today, you mm-hmm. know. Uh so it's an evolving it's an evolving thing, but uh I I kept going. I mean, I kept chasing those guys and wanted to be nationally recognized. It's a little different than what I'm doing today. I mean, mm-hmm. for for 20 years I chased being like one of the best custom makers in the world, you mm-hmm. know, and and my knives were super high end. I mean, five, ten thousand dollar knives, you know, thirty thousand dollar sword, like and, and I say that to say it's like they were collectibles. Yeah. And I was tr- they were art they were art pieces and I was trying to like chase those legends in that mm. world, you know. It's really cool too because knife making was generally lost um in the in the United States since it really started coming back in the seventies. Um forging Damascus steel, you know, forge welding steel we see old uh, damascus shotgun barrels that we we all know from you know europe and whatnot back in the 1800s but that stuff was gone uh, especially in the u.s and some old legends that we i talk about who rick rick dunkerley's who i learned from you know he was looking up to a guy named don fogg well don was one of about literally five guys maybe seven in the country in the 70s trying to learn this shit but there was no resources um and uh it's really cool because don would come out we'd have hammer-ins you know we'd host uh like a conference and these guys would come out and they would teach us and uh looking back on it it's actually exactly why i started my podcast i didn't really care necessarily about building a big podcast but i wanted to record don fogg's voice for knife makers down the road because people on the internet now it's all about internet yeah and social media and people don't know who those legends are and people need to know, especially knife makers who want to be serious about their craft, should know who Don Fogg is and Steve Schwarz or Daryl Meyer, you know. Um, but if you look on Instagram, you're not going to find them. Yeah. Um, well, that's what I noticed about you is what's seemingly different, which is probably associated with how you kind of came up in this space, is you do interface. You do face-to-face engagements. You get out there. You yeah. meet people. You set up the tent. Your business is super successful, yet you're still continuing to get out there, shake hands, yeah. and build relationships. And I don't think a lot of people um, who are trying to start, build, or sustain businesses have that mindset. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's it's part of our thing at Philcraft. It's like constantly, there is no time you check out. Right. That's just part of it. Like yeah. if you want to build relationships and build trust with the customer, and that needs to be long term, you have to be able to willing to get out there and you did that obviously at an early age yeah you had to back then because if if you wanted to sell something i mean you might be able to go to a local gun show or local flea market or art in the park or something like that but you wanted to be on the national scale you had to travel and you had to go to big shows you know same same with guns there were big national gun shows back then and i miss um, those days of those gun shows they're so cool and I got, I remember getting letters from customers that read about me in Blade Magazine and letters from customers in, you know, in Europe. And we'd go back and forth about an order for a year. Like, well, I mail him a letter back and then three months later I get another letter back, you know, <laughs> like, no, I don't like the design on that handle. Yeah. How about this? And then three months later, <laughs> yep, that looks good, you know. Crazy. Um, but you had to face to face, you had to go to a show, you know, and I, I was his age, I, my, my boy Hank is just kind of sitting in the corner here, but I was you know, he's 14. I was sitting there at a, you know, Atlanta blade show of 14 behind a table. And if you just sit there like a bump on a log, you're not going to sell anything. So you, you know, you had to do the face to face stuff and shake people's hand. And 
that's also how I got so good so fast. It wasn't because I was some savant. It was, I would go ask these legends, like, how'd you do that? Will you show me? Can I come visit your shop? And, you know, maybe it was a pest at times, probably, you know, but I think most of those guys, I mean, I rarely got told no, rarely had a guy ever. And the knife world's super cool, like Lucas with Grizzly Forge, right? People see me post something of his or him of mine, and they're like, God, aren't you guys enemies? Like, you yeah. both make knives. Like, no, he's my brother. Like, knife makers are the only reason I am here where I am today. Mm. They, they are the, the guys that taught me everything I know. And, yeah, I figured out a little bit on my own. But um, So it's not like the tactical space. It's not. Yeah, it, yeah. It's interesting that way. Like we saw that, um, more of like the factory side of the blade show. If you, if you ever have been to the Atlanta blade show, it's the biggest knife show in the world, right? And the custom makers are in the middle. Yeah. And then the factories are generally around the outside and some of the tactical stuff are in some other rooms. And it's so weird because the custom makers in the middle, it's like a family reunion. Mm-hmm. And it's like, holy shit, Mike, how did you do that? Like, what did you do? And like, and every now and then, you know, your buddy would be like, Give me another month. I'm working on something here. I can't tell you yet, you know. Mm. But once he gets it like worked out and figured he out, spreads that knowledge. And yeah. But if I learn that from you, I'm going to be like, hey, Mike Glover showed me how to do this. Yeah. And then I took it and I did my thing. Like I didn't just make your your thing. I I like put my twist on it. Yeah. And I give you credit. That's and that's way different than the tactical space. We yeah. try to come in with that mindset, and everybody's like, why are you giving your secrets away? I'm like, there's secrets and tactics. I mean. I just made it up, so I don't think it's a secret. And right. they're supposed to be benefiting people, so I don't know why I would keep that a secret. So I don't, it, it, the whole thing is bizarre world. But I noticed that about the knife community, even with Lucas and some of the guys, they're more open, they're, they're more friendly, especially when people are inquisitive about knives. Because, yeah, I mean, you see a, you know, this is the Philcraft knife, but you see this uh, MKC Philcraft knife, and you're like, like, how the hell was that made? Right. And, you know, if you go to a lot of, obviously, a lot of, uh, if you go to Walmart or you go to any of the, the, the big retail shops and stores, there's no story there. I right. I mean, it's, it's factory press in a shop in China. Yep. Um, but you guys actually have the story. I'm curious about MKC. Was it always Montana Knife Company back in the day or did that evolve as a brand that it is now? Yeah, it's, in, it's an interesting one. So I, I, again, I was a custom maker for a long time and, and, uh, I always had this idea of, of this, you know, this knife company I wanted to build. And, um, the one thing that was frustrating and, the, and part of the reason I brought up the price of like those high end knives back when I was making those was I would get locals that would want to order a hunting knife for their kid or for their uncle or their dad or whatever, or a chef's knife for their, their wife. And, um, it was really hard for me to make a knife that was affordable for the dude that's just working a regular blue collar job. Like, oh, a thousand bucks for a hunting knife. Like, bro, I can, that's, that's a yeah, lot of money. It's a month's right? So then I would either make knives cheaper than I probably should be working and I'm not making much money mm-hmm. or, or the guy, or I'd make guy, you know, guy'd feel bad and be like, oh, sorry, but I can't afford that. And it's an awkward thing. And, yeah. um, I'd also, I'd go to stores and I would see what was available for hunting knives. And I could tell that nobody that was hunting was making and designing those knives. Mm-hmm. And they were like an afterthought. They were like a folding knife company that put out a hunting knife. And so it, over the years, that, 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 was, that bothered me. And uh, I always wanted to start more of a production company. And I actually registered the name Montana Knife Company with the state of Montana when I was 19. Oh, my 
Um, but I didn't launch it until I was 38. <laughs> um, so hopefully you weren't paying taxes on that. <laughs> no, no, but but and I got to give my mom credit. My mom was the one at 19 that said like, "Well, you should save the name." Oh, like, get the name. Wow, smart. So we registered the name. Such a great name. Yeah, it's like iconic. I think that's like, yeah, that it, I mean, it's hot, it, more so than ever before. Day by day, I see people who I, I have even no association with, like wearing a T-shirt yeah. or, or doing a post. And I'm like, oh, this is like a big thing. Yeah, it, But it's yeah. synonymous, I think, with quality. But also, it's kind of iconic. I mean, knives coming out of Montana, I feel like you expect them to be proper. It's, it's also an idea. It's a knife company, but it's an idea. And it's, and it's, a, um, it's, it's really a company for people people that really believe in a lot of the things that we believe in, which Mm. is American manufacturing, you know, supporting our military, national pride, pride for our flag, you know, um, and the blue collar worker and the guy that's like grinding it out, you know, that's that embrace the grind type. There's guys all over Montana. They're out there farming and ranching and, and welding and doing shit like that. It's not on Instagram. They're not, they're not doing it for the gram. They're doing it because it's, their livelihood and honestly we we our slogans kind of working nice for working people I love and now that. working people there's a lot i mean there's lawyers that go to the office to work their ass off you know and are, are working on paperwork all night long but there's also you know frankly i'm i'm envisioning a guy like my cousin who's a welder who's laying in a a right away in south dakota welding on you know a 24 inch pipeline yeah all day every day freaking wintertime wind blowing like those people who are just grinding the rancher who's calving all night long and taking care of his herd yeah so um and it might be the cop you know who's putting in night shift so you can go as many different people as you want you know but um that's what montana knife company is and and i felt like there's and i still feel like there's gaps and there's places where there's we're making tools for those people to Mm -hmm. use um, and our knives aren't for everybody. You know, our knives are made to, to use and abuse. We say use, abuse and pass down. You know, the, the, the one thing with that is, is one thing that was really bothering me in the last 10 years, we've seen a big rise of the replaceable blade, the throwaway knife. And we live in a throwaway society. Um, you walk into target right now, you can't point to one thing in there that's made to pass down. Mm. It's all made to go in the garbage can eventually. Yeah. Almost um, on, like on purpose on purpose yeah and made to be cheap and and uh that the one there's a few things in society that we have always passed down knives guns jewelry and artwork maybe even some furniture that you know you know you used to see desks and stuff that used to be built by grandpa or whatever but that's about all we passed down really Mm. truly um and I don't know how many people came in my shop in the last 25 years and asked me to sharpen. Again, we're not talking high-end customs. It might be an old buck knife or an old case knife or, you know, an old timer. And it's like, hey, this was my grandpa's. He carried this every day that I ever knew when I was a kid. And two blades are broke off of it. But he sharpened this one blade and I just want to keep it, you know. Or some guys are like, my grandpa had this and I want to use it. Get it sharp for me and I want to use it like he did. Mm-hmm. Um, uh. But people came into my shop all the time having had those passed down. And now all of a sudden, here we are. We're 
30 and 40 years old and we're using knives that we're throwing away. And then I love it when I see a blade. My great, great grandfather ran a butcher shop in Montana after they settled in there, settled in Montana. And, uh, I have a couple of his butcher's knives and, uh, they were probably about almost two inches wide when they were brand new. And I I guarantee you that one's not an inch wide. It's been sharpened. I don't know how many thousands of times. Is it useful right now? Absolutely not, but it is cool. That's so awesome. Um, so I, I think, you know, and it's the same thing with guns, right? With pistols, like, oh, this was my grandpa's pistol. Or, um, you know, so I, 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 there's just a bunch of ideals that I think our company represents. And I think Americans in general are like getting back to a lot of that. Yeah. And appreciating, um, there's a lot of us that appreciate American craftsmanship and, you know, our parents and grandparents being proud of that stuff. Are you... It it kind of like when you say that out loud, it scares the crap out of me because we're the minority. Yeah, and and the things that we hold on to because, like, we hold on to them. I mean, there's things that like, you know, I, I kept my Jeep and my truck that I've had for 25 plus years because I I was thinking about my kids before they were born. Right. Because I I was like I'm gonna hand this down to my kids and I want my kid to drive that Jeep and think about his old man as a green beret mm-hmm. and. I feel like the majority of our society doesn't think that way anymore. And it's interesting because I see companies like yours, companies like ours that are pushing this and people seem to be gravitating towards it more. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing that? Are you seeing your market expand because people are paying more attention and they're like, yeah, this is something that I want to get behind. And if I'm going to have the tool, it needs to be the company I align with in values. Yeah, and I, I absolutely have seen that a bunch. And I, I think a lot of people are like me. I mean, a, a few years ago, I went through and I threw away every shirt that wasn't from a company that I, I and again, back then I wasn't friends with, you know, Evan Hafer or anybody at Black Rifle. I just bought their coffee, right? I wasn't, didn't know you at all. I didn't know any of these people. I wasn't in the industry. I didn't even have a company yet. But I was just a dude that was tired of watching people kneel for our national anthem yeah. and see giant companies paying those guys millions of dollars. And I'm like, I am not wearing that shit. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, whether it was a knock on shirt or wh- whatever, uh, uh, even some of the bigger brands, at least I felt like some of them still supported my ideals. And uh, I think now I think there's a lot of people doing that stuff. Mm. And when you wear that Jack Carr shirt right there, yeah, yeah. it means something. It does. And when a guy passes you on the street, doesn't need to know your Mike Glover, he doesn't need to know anything about you, he, but he already knows about you yeah. when he sees that shirt. Yeah. And I think it's the same way when you see a Black Rifle Coffee shirt. It's the same way when you see one of our shirts. To a small degree, people are learning like, oh, those guys, those guys think like I do. Um, and again, I don't, and I think we all agree, like, think what you want, like, do what you want. But, um, I'm, I'm proud of the way we think as a company, as a brand. And I think more brands and more companies need to stand up and be vocal about that and not be afraid of being canceled. You know, do I want to be the largest knife company in the United States? Sure. But if we get to number eight and I have to now start sacrificing my values to get to number one, then I'll be number eight. Like, I'll be totally happy with that. You know? Yeah. Um, if it means we have to start stamping shit in China, you know, or start being more woke on our Instagram or, you know, granted you have to run business. You have to be smart about, you know, we, we want to sell chef's knives to women who don't 
under fish, you know. Um, and there's a lot of people, you know, we're going to start making pocket knives and stuff. And there's a lot of people that don't necessarily do what we do. They still love their country and they appreciate hard work and American craftsmanship. Yeah. And those are, man, so many companies are folding to that. Yeah. And, And what I've seen over the, you know, the last seven years you've been in business, I've seen a lot of companies come up and then something, whether it's a social issue or something controversial, they'll be on the wrong side of that value. They compromise themselves and there's no coming back from that. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, and, and what I've realized outside of like the business tactics of operating in that space, if you just be you and, you know, whether it's the owner or the people or the culture and you just stick by your values and you don't compromise, then you'll be okay. You'll be yeah. fine. You can yeah. ride the wave. You can get through right. all of these issues. With respect. With respect, without having to compromise. And like I did this Uvalde video, and I thought it was going to be crazy controversial because, you know, I, I, I train law enforcement officers, so I'm in a position as somebody with experience, but also that trains them that could criticize them. But I went, at, I went out the gate hard. Yep. And I, I ripped them new assholes. And, but I felt like deservingly so. Yep. But as a company that teaches civilian self-protection, law enforcement officers, um, this, this idea of running into gunfire, the fact that it didn't happen, I wasn't going to sway. So when people didn't have to go, where's Mike's opinion on this? Because I'm out front. Right. Because I, I don't want anybody. It's not even about anybody else. I called John that night and was like, the video just released. I just saw it. It made me sick. Prep all the equipment. Tomorrow morning, I'm coming in and I'm ripping some ass. Yeah. And, and when you stand behind your values that way, the business is almost an, the, the monetization and the profit margins and all that is just almost an afterthought because your values pushed out front of who you are, who you represent. I mean, MKC, I'm like, oh, yeah, they're a knife company. Right. <laughs> but it's like there's so much value there in the education, the, the representing the swag mm-hmm. and, and your values. And then you go, oh, Oh, and they have like the greatest knife that's, that's made in America. Yeah. It's, it's, it's something that I think a lot of people need to pay attention to. Yeah. And if you don't come out and criticize those cops, then you're, you're no longer credible. No longer. Because you're just, you're just taking the side of, um, we, we see this all the time on the news where the news will refuse to criticize the people on their side of the aisle, no matter what. And, and if you can't, like yes, I we absolutely support our our police and our military and and uh, but wrong is wrong. Yeah, and and yeah. and you know I I'm a big part of everything that was going on over the years was like was seeing our cops just absolutely run through the mud was yep. complete complete bullshit. You yeah. know, um, however, uh, not every cop's good, and apparently there was a big hallway of spineless guys that day yeah and and you you gotta call a spade a spade you have to um so and and it's hard for me i'm you're in a different spot like i'm not a veteran i i wasn't a cop i don't i don't have that expertise so you're definitely better to criticize than i am but um but also you you tend to hope one you hope you're never in that situation but you tend to hope even if you weren't a veteran or a cop or have no training that if that's the situation you find yourself in you do something. Yeah. I mean, Elijah Dickin, that, that kid, that 22-year-old kid, yeah, shoots that dude eight out of 10 times from 40 yards yeah. because he's like, I'm not going to let this dude murder more innocent people. Yeah. And, you know, the, uh, the controversy was 
I mean, it was a controver- It wasn't a controversy, but they said, oh, it took him several minutes to engage the shooter. It took him like 15 seconds. Yeah. The dude opened fire from leaving the bathroom and just came out mag dumping, killing three people. In that engagement, he, he, he shoots this dude eight out of 10 times. Yeah. And because he had the willingness to step up, you know, standing for his values, and he wasn't going to let somebody be hurt or harmed. And it's way. why, like, you know, last weekend we went to, we got invited to go to Eberly Stocks event, their out there event in the middle of nowhere in Idaho. And yeah, I was supposed the, to be there. The Seekins yeah. Precision guys were there and the Hat Creek training guys were there. And um, it's an ama- it was an amazing experience. You know, I took my son who's 14 and was able to take him through that stuff. And, and to get training from dudes that have that much knowledge. And again, I, I hope my son's never in a situation to have to apply that stuff. But more people need to try to get their kids in a situation where if you're like me and you don't have the knowledge, go find it. And yeah, yeah I was lucky for sure. People will be like, well, you just, you know, we're lucky to get invited to that. Well, yeah, but there's gun ranges all over the country. There's handgun courses all over the country. To be able to be in a situation where you're prepared, hell, tear with Black Rifle, you know, showing showing everyone how to use a tourniquet. You know, just that alone. Um, that was, you know, kind of getting off course there, but uh when we were at Sornex a couple of years ago at Winterstrong and they were teaching a tourniquet course and it's like for 30 bucks, you might save your family's life by, and so we come home and now I've got your field craft kits on the back of every seat in our vehicle. Cause it's like, now that I've seen that, now that I know if my kid bled to death or my wife from a piece of glass in a car accident and I didn't spend the 50 bucks to prepare, I know. oh, I wouldn't be able to live with myself. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I outfitted, you know, my kids' cars with that and my wife and I don't know this preparedness, uh, it's, it, it cuts across the board and, and, uh, I don't know. I think, I think with, with the knives, we're, we're also in that we're being prepared going in the back country. That was another thing about the throwaway blade. Hey, well, you're going into the back country on an eight day mule deer trip in the middle of nowhere in Colorado and you're not taking a fixed blade knife. Yeah. You're, you're taking a, a glorified razor blade. And granted, those knives have some some use. I'm not going to argue. Like clearly, they're handy. Pack one. That's fine. But you better have a fixed blade knife. Yes, on. that's like durable, reliable. Yeah, has a good reputation. Yeah. yeah, like the dude that had to cut his hand off because he was trapped He's under the a rock. Remember? Durber, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Have a have a knife on you and be be prepared. That preparation thing. You know. Let me let me ask you this because uh, I want to talk about this Philcraft blade. Um, cause it was an amazing kind of path and journey. We played the long game on it. It's been a while. It's been a year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, and I don't mind that. Uh, I like building relationships long-term. Um, but I want to ask you your personal opinion on knives because you're the expert. What is your favorite knife in the world? Like if you had to pick one knife that you had to pack out and your life depended on it, what is the nomenclature, what's the design? Is is it your knife? Is it one of your guys' knives? If you had to pick one, what would it be? Yeah, well, I mean, and, that's, and, that's a lot of pressure. Cause. Well, and the way I'll answer this, and my, people might say, well, yeah, you made it your company. But when I, when I launched this company, I didn't have a lot of money to launch, right? I, I, had, I, was, working a, I was also working a full-time job as a lineman, a journeyman lineman working on power lines. Um, and my wife had been encouraging me to like, you got to launch this, you got to do this. Right. And so I had, 
I didn't have enough money to just go in and launch 10 knives and like come out of the box with this huge set. Right. And, uh, so I'm like, I, I'm just going to make what I think is a perfect knife. Um, and we're a hunting knife company, but I also knew a lot of people would just carry it every day. So our Blackfoot knife, and we call it that because I grew up in the Blackfoot river Valley and you can carry that knife fishing. You can carry that knife deer hunting, elk, bear, moose, or out on the job logging as your everyday carry or as a cop or whatever. And we have people carrying that Blackfoot blade in all kinds of different scenarios. And it's actually very, very similar, kind of crazy similar to this field craft knife. Yeah. And I think that alone is the testament to it because, you know, Kevin Estella came up kind of with this design, but we based it off that Blackfoot. Mm. That Blackfoot was based on a hunting knife. This knife is based on an EDC kind of self-defense knife. Like a hybrid. That's still handy to use Mm. for opening boxes and doing whatever you need to do. But that, the reason that knife, you know, it's about a four inch blade, actually Mm. a little bit less. Um, If you know how to use a knife, you don't need a huge knife. Um, Some people like a big knife, but you also have to carry it. And you're carrying that knife 99% of the time and you're using it 1%. Mm. So out of the way, light, durable. And the one thing that people never talk about, and that's what's made my company, I think, different is... The customer almost always walks in my shop and says, I can't sharpen this knife. I don't know how to sharpen. I suck at sharpening. And then they hand me the knife and I'm like, you never had a chance. You, you, you had a blade that's way too thick, wrong steel, wrong heat treat. You're, you're trying to sharpen this diamond on this soft stone over here. It's not mm. going to work. Um, I want the, the whole idea of passing down a knife. That means they need to maintain it for their entire life. Mm. So you have to be able to resharpen your own blade. And you should be in the backcountry and be able to resharpen this Fieldcraft knife and every Montana knife company knife we make and every knife you'll find on a store at a shelf, no matter what, will go dull. Eventually, it's going to go dull if you're using it. That's mm-hmm. a fact of life. Can you resharpen it? And, um, you know, a lot of companies go after knife sales with fancy, like, this is the new greatest steel on the market. This is the most, you know, wear resistant steel that's ever been made. And that might be true. On a catcher test, it's called a catcher test where they, they, they measure wear resistance, right? But once the edge is gone, man, it's gone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and unless you have a belt grinder, you're not getting it back. Wow. Well, to me, that doesn't do anybody any good when you're in the middle of the Frank Church wilderness. So um, we make our knives thin. Uh, and again, that has to do with edge geometry. The blade is nice and thin. It passes through material better. It slices. If I try to slice you open with a thin knife or a thick knife, thin knife's going deeper. Um, passes through elk hair better and through hide, and um, it's lighter. But also, when you're sharpening, you're removing metal from your edge. Mm. Well, if you have a big, thick edge, that's more metal you got to remove. If it's thinner, a couple passes, and it's back to sharp. Um, so that trade-off, though, and this is it's it's trade-offs in everything. Um, no different than a sniper rifle, right? Like the biggest, heaviest, long barrel, heavy gun, probably going to be easier to shoot and handle than a five pound 300 wind mag, right? Or a 338, like mm-hmm. gonna, that, that's going to kick and bounce around, but it's going to be nice to carry. Mm. Um, same thing with ours, that thin blade, like can you break the tip off of one of our knives? Sure, if you use it as a screwdriver, but if you use it as a knife, you're going to be fine. You know, I would rather one guy out of a thousand break a tip and have the other 999 
think this thing cuts well and is easy to sharpen. And we've had very few come back for that, but I tell people and we warn him for life. So if you, if you do do something stupid with it and break it, you know, we'll, we'll back you up. But so it's the Blackfoot, the Blackfoot, that, that knife, that knife has been stolen from me three times. It is the most stolen knife in really? this company. Well, I mean, you can't have them around these companies because you do <laughs> yeah. a, you do a hunt, you do a, you do a film shoot, you do content, you do anything. And people see that laying around like, Oh yeah. yeah. And they make it theirs. Yeah. Uh, I think I stole Evan's Blackfoot recently. Well, and that, and that knife, you know, it has a tip on it, so you can cape out around the base of the horns of a mule deer. I used it. I used. I don't know if you saw that. But I used it to cape. Yeah. It was my first cape on a mule deer, and I used it. And the guy that I was with in Deseret was like, "What are you using?" And I said, "I'm using this MKC." And he's like, "Oh, good choice." He said, "It's going. That's going to make our life easier." And caping is a challenge, mm-hmm. especially when you're trying to maintain the cape. Mm-hmm. And it, it was without that knife. And I think, like you said, the geometry or the shape of it, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have been as successful. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I've never done a cape before, but I don't even think about that because I'm like, oh, this buck knife is going to work. Right. It wouldn't have worked in yeah. that situation with, yeah. with that setup. And like this Fieldcraft knife, you can choke up on these knives and you can get your finger out towards the tip. Yeah. So if you're caping, my finger right now is a quarter inch from the end of this tip of this knife yeah. and you can get it and you have control. Yeah. Control of your of your weapon, whether it's a pistol or a knife or your tool is incredibly important. And that's where guys that have a really long blade, you know, again, if if we're talking, you know, if Kevin Estelle asked me to make a fieldcraft knife and we want to chop kindling for camp, different. And and build shelters, that's different. Yeah. But you you know, like in the case of the Blackfoot, you asked me about all around all jobs you know, we, we, we've done videos where we take the, like that little blackfoot knife and I take a hammer and I beat it through wood. Like, even though it's thin, it's freaking strong. Yeah. You know, same with this knife. Like they're strong. Um, well, walk, walk me through this one. Cause I'm, we're holding three of the same model, different color handles. Yep. What's, how did this journey start? Because I defaulted to Kevin Estella, yep. our, our expert in bushcraft and survival. He's got, I think. Uh, as far as last time we checked, the most popular bushcraft book on Amazon, but one of the most skilled guys who actually lives that life. How did yeah, that start? Yeah, I mean, I own a knife company, and Kevin knows more about knives and like the the knife shapes and what company came out oh, with yeah. this and what year. And I mean, he's a nerd. Yeah, no, he's awesome, but he's very he is uh, very knowledgeable when it comes to what knife, what use, why. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. And it has, it has been a while. It's been interesting because, you know, real quick back to our company, you know, I launched this only in, in 2020 during the pandemic. Yeah. And it, you know, I launched with 200 knives and we kind of did it the old school way where I launched 200 knives and then we took the money from that and we made more knives and started building. And by the end of 2020, that's when my wife was like, you got to quit your job. And finally, January 1st of 21, I quit my job. So we've been at this a Smart year and a half. Move. And look at you. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. No, it, it, it blew up for sure. And now, now we're finally ramped up to where we're building a lot. We're actually building a new facility right now. We're, we're, we're buying CNC machines. I'm hiring people. So as far as this taking time, it absolutely did because we just, uh, holy cow, it's just been like putting out fires and, and going like crazy. But with the design of this, Kevin, Kevin wanted an EDC knife, more of a, 
less of a hunting knife and more of a knife that like a guy like him would just carry to work every single day. Yeah. Now Kevin might also be out on the weekend fishing or camping and he can still use this knife. Um, but in general, he wanted something that somebody could carry to the office in some city somewhere. Um, and, and have a self-defense knife. So this will be an inside the waistband knife. We're going to have a new, a new sheath design that we haven't done before. Um, Kevin wanted a knife that he could cap with his thumb. So on both sides of this blade, of this handle, you can turn this knife all the way around and have your thumb over the top. So if you need to oh, get yeah. into some material and pull, you can. If you need to get into some material and push, you can do that. Or... If you end up in a situation where you're hand to hand and you gotta you gotta let somebody have it, you've got that ability to do that. Mm. Um, it's got good ergonomics. It's like feels proper. Like the it, it's almost like it was designed intentionally around the shape of a man's hand, like a, a hand. Yeah, and we and I sent a f- I I did a few iterations, and that's what's cool about my company is I hand make our prototypes first. Yeah. And I sent it to Kevin and Kevin's like, I want to do this different and change this. And we went back and forth a little bit instead of just drawing knives on a computer. And yeah. I really think that's the difference between what I'm doing. When people pick up these knives, they feel like a custom knife, but it's a production knife. I mean, I'm yeah. not hand forging every one of these. Yeah. Um, but, but it, it starts as you're looking at the actual ergonomics of somebody holding it versus yep. a CAD file or a template on a, on. Yeah. And once I get this ground out and we get it to where the way I feel now it's on, it's on my computer guy to match what I did. Yeah. Not he draws something with a bunch of these fancy lines that look cool. And then we just print it out and make it. Yeah. And you put it in your hand and you're like, well, this doesn't feel like anybody ever held it. Well, they didn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it looked cool on the computer screen. Um, it's a stainless steel blade. Um, uh, CPM 154. It's a really good stainless steel. Uh, titanium screws. So nothing on here will rust. Yeah. Uh, we've got some uh, some grip, uh, some jibbing that we did in the um, uh, jimping we did here in the back of the handle. So when you go to pull that out of the sheath and it's there, you can reach down. And as you're pulling up that swell in that handle, you're going to lock into those and, and be able to pull that knife out of that sheath and, and have something to kind of hang on to. Um, and then we have a little bit of a dip kind of in that, in that blade and it, it accomplishes two things. It's a place to kind of lock your thumb into back oh, I here. I see it. I, I just, I didn't even, you don't even see it unless you get it the right angle. It's, it. it's not much, but it's a little bit. And it also puts that tip directly in line in center, uh, with the back of the handle. And so this, I'm not a knife fighter. And if you saw me fight with a knife, you'd, you would probably laugh, but. Kevin knows more about that stuff. And Kevin was really, uh, like the first iteration I did, the tip uh, dropped, I think, just a little bit more. And he really wanted a drop point, but I think we had kind of overdone it at first. And he wanted to line that tip up with the center of that handle. That way, no matter where, if you're using that knife and I'm coming at you, that knife from the palm of my hand and this, this finger going forward, that tip of that blade is following everywhere it goes and it's not offline and if you do drive it into something it's not kicking it yeah one way or another it's your force is going into whatever you're you're kevin estella you nice savage savage (laughs) that's crazy i never thought about that because it's like a i don't know it's fulcrum it's like a Mm -hmm. it's like a center point and it would pitch if you if it was off center Mm -hmm. that would make it drive especially into in turns yep that's crazy 
So, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm stoked about it. And honestly, I learned some stuff with working with Kevin on this stuff like that. Um, you know, I'm, again, I've, I've made high end custom kind of art piece knives and I've been a hunter and made hunting knives. Um, I'm not, you know, I wasn't in the military or police or any of that. So in regards to going like hands on, that's just not my expertise. So, yeah. um, well, I like the subtlety in that too, cause we're not, he's not saying like, this is a knife fighting knife. Right. It's just got the capability it's a to tool. do that. It's a tool. So yeah. you it, like, it's designed for everything utility based, but if you had to use it for everyday carry, which yeah. is the statistical improbability, right? then you could do that. But man, that peace of mind, the, the last thing with that peace of mind to carry in this, yeah. uh, Kevin and I talked about knife laws and knife laws can be kind of goofy. You know, a lot of, a lot of laws say, you know, four inches or less. Does that mean four inches? Can you have a four inch blade or not? If it's a four inch blade, are are you now illegal? So we are three and fifteen sixteenths. <laughs> wow. And that's from the tip of the blade to the front of this handle. And that that way, in most and you'll know your local laws, but in most places, you can have this inside the waistband and you and you're legal. Yeah. Um, and that can be for a pocket knife or anything. You know, you see a lot of pocket knives just under four inches. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I can imagine that um especially for a fixed blade, people kind of get crazy. Yeah. And do you, do you guys do a folder by chance? We're working on it, but we don't right now. But yeah. That's kind of the point of honestly, this new building we're building. Yeah. Uh, people were hiring, like we're, we're, we're working on design. It's going to be a while, but we're, we're headed that way hard. Is this, where's this at in Montana? Uh, near Missoula, Frenchtown. It's Western Montana. Okay. That's where you're at. Mm-hmm. That's where you're located at. Yep. Do you guys have a pro shop or anything? Uh, we are actually putting in a little retail space in the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation Visitor Center there, right in Missoula, just yeah. a little ways from our shop. Our shop is actually at my, on my personal property. It's not really yeah. a, a place for, uh, for people to come, but it's going to be cool because we're going to have that there. It's an interesting thing. I'm, I'm actually giving a talk on the live stage this weekend at TAC for, for the Elk Foundation. And when I was 16 years old and 15, 16, 17, right through all that time through high school, I was donating knives to our local Elk Foundation banquets back then. First knife I ever saw mine go for over $1,000 was at an Elk Foundation banquet. Oh, wow. And it's wild because 30 years later, 25 years later, you know, I'm displaying at Elk Camp and TAC up here and, and giving a talk for the Elk Foundation. So crazy. it's kind of wild how, you know, playing Little League baseball to this point, it kind of went full circle you know so crazy man yeah um a couple more knife questions before we close this out because I'm, I'm interested in your opinion based on your expertise who's the best knife maker that you've ever come across or or maybe never had the opportunity to meet is there like a guy that you met and you're like man this this guy is above and beyond everybody you've ever communicated with or built with yeah there's a couple um and a couple have passed away, a couple are retired, and there's a couple current guys that are doing really cool stuff, but it's really hard to choose one. Um, it's like asking the best basketball player, well, what, it, which position? Yeah. Uh, what are they? What's their expertise? Yeah, yeah. But to me, that's an all around question, right? All around knife maker. Uh, there's a guy in Scottsdale, Arizona, or in, uh, sorry, Prescott, Arizona. Uh, his name is Larry Fagan, and he's probably around 60 right now. Unbelievable. And you won't probably find any of his stuff on Instagram. You'd have to Google it. But um, Larry Fagan is an artist, but he also is a cowboy and, you know, uses knives. But 
His work is unbelievable. Just blow your mind. And he can do replica stuff from, you know, old Jim Bowie days to new stuff with goblin carvings and gold inlay and engraving. Just oh, wow. amazing. Um, that Dawn Fog that I talked about was so ahead of his time. Groundbreaking stuff. Guys today will be like, I invented this new Damascus pattern. And I'm like, open up this book. Look what Dawn made in 1999. <laughs> you know, wow. it's like the guy was amazing. Um, yeah. So a couple guys like that. Buster Wierenski was a legend, um, has passed away. Uh, today, Harvey Dean down in Texas is amazing. Uh, there's a lot of young guys, man. The internet changed the game. Like I used to know everybody. You, you if you wanted to be a nationally known knife maker, you could go to the blade show and you could be like, Hey, that young guy over there, he's, he's good. He's coming. And then next year, like, Oh, he's better. Um, now with YouTube and all the videos out there and Instagram and the fact that you can sell knives without going to shows, I'll see guy, I'll see knives pop up on the internet. I'm like, who in the hell made that? And where, what log did he crawl out from under? Wow. Uh, you don't see him coming cause they're just, you know, in their little shop grinding away. So yeah. it's really cool. Um, yeah, there's some talented guys out there and I, and there's a lot of different skills, you know, it's, it's an art form, but it's also metallurgy. Um, uh, it's science, scientific. Uh, it's not just make sure, you know, your steel is pointed to magnetic North and, you know, you have your hat on backwards and, you know, you do this certain way. It's like, there's a lot of science behind this, you know, the heat treating. We, we have a video on our Instagram, our bear tooth blade. We designed it with Cole Kramer, uh, bear guide up in Alaska. And, uh, I did SIG hunting games. Cole Kramer. Yeah. I love Cole. <laughs> Cole's awesome. He's so funny. We took that blade. That blade's about seven inch long blade. Uh, real thin. He wanted one for fleshing bears. Yeah. So super light, super easy to sharpen. Very, again, very, very thin, somewhat flexible, um, kind of flexible. Uh, anyway, we, we took that blade and we bent that blade 90 degrees in a vise without breaking it. Oh, wow. Um, and that's actually the, like the master and journeyman test, just to run you through that real quick. You know, when I was 15 to become a journeyman, you have to forge a blade. You have a performance part and then you have a, finish knife judging the performance part you got to forge a blade that's 10 inches long and has to chop a one inch rope in half in one chop that just shows sharpness then you have to chop two two by fours in half as many times as you want chop as long as you want whittle the thing whatever but when you get through that rope in those two two by fours that blade still has to be able to shave hair and then at the end of that you have to bend that blade 90 degrees in a vice without breaking it oh and the, the point of that is, you know, again, these factories and these companies will make a knife super hard to hold an edge forever, but now they got to make that blade thick because if you flex it, it snaps. Yeah. And so in a good custom knife, in a good knife, you want a blade that's a nice combination of edge holding ability, but tough. Yeah. And it's an inverse scale. The harder that blade is, the lower the toughness is going to be. Interesting. And, and guys will be like, what's the Rockwell on that knife, you know? And I'll tell them it's about 61. Well, I got one that's 66. It's like, well, you're carrying around a piece of glass. Congratulations. <laughs> you know? Uh, so it's a balance. It's a balance. And, and if, if Kevin Estelle is asking me to make a field craft knife and he's going to be prying and chopping and oh, a bunch yeah. of stuff, I'm going to bring that hardness actually down maybe 59, 60. A little bit more flexibility. But yeah. he's going to gain some toughness. Yeah. And he's going to be able to abuse it more. More than you're going to be able to abuse like a knife like this or a Blackfoot. This knife is not a pry bar. Yeah. You know, it's a knife. And yeah. so 
you can break it if you do stupid shit with it. Yeah. Um, but that being said, it's also not delicate. Um, but that's the test for that journeyman. And then you have to go to the Atlanta blade show and present five knives to a panel of masters and they judge all your fit and finish. Wow. Is this, is this blade straight? Is it ground? Well, how's your design? Uh, did you fit your henna material up nicely? Um, and so I did that at 15, but then at the master Smith level, when I was 19, you have to do it all in Damascus steel. So that chopping blade has to be 300 layers of Damascus steel that you hand forged. Which I heard Damascus is one of the hardest steels to forge. So it's, it's a, it's a learned skill. Um, but there is a lot of myth and a lot of legend, you know, the samurais, right? They used to believe the more times you fold the steel, the stronger it gets, right? Well, they were just going off of, well, hell, if I do it once, if I do it twice, it just gets stronger. As we know now, it's about metallurgy. It's like, what steel are you using? What are the alloys in it? Um, as it turns out, if you actually forge it incorrectly, like too hot and too long, you can actually burn the life out of it, carbon. Um, so Damascus steel is layers of steel. And really a big reason they would have wanted to have done that is, is say you're in your shop and it's the 1800s and you need to make something, but you got these two little thin pieces, but I need something thicker. You take those two pieces and you forge them together. Now you have a thicker piece, it's bigger, and maybe I need to make plowshares or I need to do make whatever. Um, it, it was a very useful way to, to utilize material. Uh. Same way with forging a blade. People think that, you know, back when I started in the 90s, there was a big debate about like, are forged blades better because you forge them? As we, as we learn, it's how you heat treat that steel. And what steel are you using? Did you even start with the right steel? Um, forging is a fantastic way to utilize material. Yeah. So if I have a bar that's one inch wide and a quarter inch thick, but I want a blade that's an inch and a half wide and got a curve like a kukri, well, I can forge that. Mm. If I try to grind that out, I'm going to need to buy a piece of steel that's that wide. Yeah. And cut it all out and throw all that steel away. Mm. That same piece of steel, I can forge out five knives utilize my material and back in the 18 1900s utilizing material like you're not going to throw away steel yeah so you ship that stuff up to mississippi yeah <laughs> you know you're not going to throw it away so um a little bit more efficient yes yeah yep what's what's the future what's next for mkc what, what do you have on the table that's coming out next is there some things that you guys are doing I know you're doing the folding blades at the new facility what's some up up and coming stuff yep culinary chefs chefs oh, knives cool. yeah uh, we're about to launch those um you know the hunting world is actually small everybody cooks uh and there again i think we've got some really cool cool stuff coming in that culinary world and again i'm, I'm a guy that's going to admit when i don't know something i'm not a know-it-all i'm not the best knife maker on the planet um but i know a lot of the best knife makers on the planet and so when it came to culinary i could build you a chef's knife and you'd probably think it's fine but if I handed that chef's knife to a professional chef, he's gonna be like, what are you doing here? <laughs> Interesting. You know, so it's about balance, right? Yeah. And angles. We talked about this knife and stabbing into something. Well, it's the same thing if you're using that knife in the kitchen. A, a guy that's using one for 30 straight years is gonna know what he likes and doesn't like. And so um, we brought in Mareko Malmasi. He's a famous chef's knife maker that's amazing to help just design those. Wow. Um, when I launch into different areas in the knife, knife world, I want to bring people with me and into my company. Like I want people to look at MKC and be like, man, he has a stable of badass dudes. Yeah. Same thing. We're going to start launching into the tactical stuff, the self-defense. I'm not going to be designing those and telling you what I think. I'm going to be asking, 
Green Berets and SEALs and Marines and cops. And and it's been interesting. I've asked guys like you. I asked 10 guys to get 10 answers. Yeah. One guy wants something super light out of my way, just on my kit, but I want to know it's there. And, and just for backup and, you know, or cut a piece of paracord. And then the next guy's like, I want to pry the lug nuts off my Humvee. <laughs> and it's like, you know, I want a samurai sword. Yeah. I yeah. want, I want a pry bar. I want a glass break glass. You know, I want to, I want to pry open whatever and, and, uh, chop shit. So it's going to be, obviously I've figured out it's going to be a line of knives, not just one knife that there is just no perfect knife for that. You know? Yeah. Are you now when, as you line these things out, does it, cause you say MKC is a hunting knife company. Is this an expansion into something else, another entity, or is it MKC diversifying? It's MKC diversifying. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, we want to have the most useful knives in lots of different areas. And awesome. yeah, when you ask about the future, we're building that building. We're, we're hiring people right now to help us launch into the folding knife category. Um, but it might be a year. I yeah. mean, yeah. It, I, I've, had, I've had my chef's knives damn near done since January. Yeah, but we've been working on getting some little things right. I just won't launch something that I don't think's right. Yeah, and uh, I've been driving some customers crazy and some people because they want them. But um, you know, ours, ours are unique. We're gonna have um, not a full sheath, but more of a slip along the edge that buckles on. So if you're going to hunt with Cole Kramer, we can actually toss a chef's knife in the duffel, throw it on the plane, and have like a chef's knife at hunting camp or more probably likely in his case, he can have a chef's knife. And when you guys are eating backstraps at night, mm. he can be cutting those up with a Montana knife company, chef's knife in camp. Ooh. You know, and the hunters are like, eh, this guy's right uptown. That's dope. Is yeah. it, is, are you going to do a chef knife set or is it just individual? I mean, I assume you would do individual knives, but the, the set will have all of them. Yeah. We're going to launch individually at first, just getting going here. And then we will start offering a set. Yep. And we've got even like a, a magnetic uh, holder instead of a block. I'm not a fan of blocks on your take up counter space. Yeah. Blocks are weird. And nothing looks cooler than if this, you know, knife's just hanging right there on the wall. Yeah. You just reach up, grab it, cut your the stuff. The magnet idea is bad. I love that. That's yeah. badass. So we've got that. We already have cutting boards on our site. Yeah. Um, you got to do the leather roll up thing too. Yeah. That's the best way to pack them out. Yes. Like mobility or overlanding. Yep. Yeah, the leather or canvas little roll up. Um, no, it's it's cool. We're we're super excited. We're coming out with um more gear, more clothing. We're wanting to start working with other uh companies on the gear side of it. Yeah. Um uh Are you guys talking to us at all about that? We are. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh cool. So exciting. Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of people cut themselves. Yeah. (laughs) So there's the whole medical side of that. Hundred percent. Um and and I, and I, honestly, before I met guys like people in your company or guys like Tier, you know, one one of my employees is a, a just retired corpsman. Yeah. Um. You start talking about guys to guys like that, and you start realizing, like, man, I've I've hunted on the edge for a long time with nothing oh, yeah. in my pack, and yeah. and now I'm hunting with my kids. Well, he's got a big ass scar on the top of his hand over there from me cutting him. Ooh, that's a gnarly one. <laughs> that's from dad? Yeah. Ooh. So that was uh that was in the middle of nowhere, near somewhat near Jordan, Montana, no cell phone service. Yeah. We got the deer, packed him to the truck, and then 
I'm like, oh, we got, got to get rid of the ends of these legs. Like, why take hooves home, right? So yeah. go around the joint on the first one. No problem. Cut it. Just hit it perfect. Comes right off. Go around the next one. I just miss it. We're kind of fighting it, you know, and how you're struggling. Yeah. You're twisting it. And, and uh, he's holding on to the leg. And, and it's the slow motion. As, as I'm doing it, it, that knife goes through and just goes right atop the cross of his hand. And he, like, jumps back and his eyes get big. And I'm like, oh. And I, I mean, I knew I got him. And uh, it, like, opens it up. And I'm like, yep, got to go. Well, now we're no cell phone service. We're probably, what, 40 miles from Jordan. Um, it's dark. It's now getting dark, which that doesn't matter. But we're at the truck. But so I have to drive. I drive to the nearest farmhouse that I see has a light on. Oh, wow. Because I wasn't sure uh, if Jordan had a doctor that was open at night yeah it's a small town yeah yeah and i thought we might have to go to lewistown which is like three hours away yeah um super nice people knocked on their door and they said yeah we got a good doctor we'll call him and he'll be waiting for you and you get there and oh wow. it wasn't a life-threatening deal yeah but i still. thought there was definitely a chance that we got into the tendon he did a bunch of testing and said ah he's good stitched him up and but it was a great example like that could have been um Absolutely. Somebody told this weekend at Everly Stock, they told a story about how, um, I think it was their grandpa, uh, died. The guy was gutting out a deer, cutting towards himself and jabbed himself in the femoral. Oh my God. And done. Found him at the deer right at the gut pile. Oh my God. Dead. So tourniquet, you know, stuff to fix a, a wound. Like we want to have some of that on our site. I don't want to carry full on huge medical packs and yeah. stuff. I just need something that. Some assurances for responsible mm-hmm. knife owning it's like gun ownership it's like selling a gun without the understanding of like what you do with the gun which is yeah. what we're doing with sig is like we're the education arm for sig because that's just a responsible thing to do i think that's awesome because yeah i mean saying you're the best knife means it's potentially i mean the, the sharpest the most yeah. capable and that could potentially lead to, to, to danger down the and, road. And, and I will say, our knives, I mean, we pride ourselves on being the sharpest. Like, I, I, I pick knives up at the store, and I'm just like, I cannot believe they're selling these. And, yeah. and frankly, I think some of that's a little bit of, a, of an effect of people thinking our knives are lasting longer because, frankly, they're starting out about 50% sharper. Wow. You know, um, we hand sharpen all of our knives. I mean, on a belt grinder, but it's a, it's a guy standing there and sharpening and checking every single blade. It's not a robot or... Yeah, um, that's your machine. QC. You actually QC the sharpness. Absolutely. How do you? And, uh, how do you? How do you? T- do you guys have videos and tutorials on knife sharpening? We do. We have one on my on on our YouTube. And quite frankly, we we we've got to follow your guys's lead and get better about our YouTube and find a video guy. And yeah. and we have a lot more educational. We actually want to do a bunch of content with with Andy, our employee, who's a corpsman. Yeah. About taking that medical kit you know people who aren't seeing all your stuff that maybe are seeing ours of like hey you should be carrying this in your pack and then here's how to use it yeah um, we should do we should do some of that i'll get with the media guys because we'll be up in, around your way this hunting season anyway it'd be cool to do some kind of cross yeah uh, content where especially because i'm personally interested in your tactics for knife sharpening I've, I've gone through kevin estella's block of instruction yep for us as a company but i always that's the one thing I was, like I got fifty knives on the shelf, but don't know how to reliably sharpen all of them. And it's interesting because now that I understand what you're saying about the balance of things, mm-hmm. I have knives that are almost impossible to sharpen. Mm-hmm. And I go, dude, I suck at sharpening a knife. Mm-hmm. Not even considering 
it's potentially the metal and the geometry and shape of everything right. that's on that edge. Right. And and I will say, lastly, about the the sharpening thing with our company, ultimately, I would prefer you send it back to me. You know, if, if it's a customer out there that's yeah. struggling, we'll sharpen that knife for free and send it back to you. It's, that's it's, awesome. We, we made it. And yeah, people are really like, well, your knives are a little more expensive than the ones that, well, they're made in America. Yeah. We're doing it the right way. We're hiring great people, veterans and, and, and really good people. And we will stand behind that knife forever. Which is a um, big deal. Yeah. And yeah. so, uh, send that knife back to us and we'll sharpen it. We'll check it out, send it back. Um, you know, and, and I, and I will say that too, about, I, I've seen this a lot, especially with black rifle coffee. You know, you get people that hammer on Black Rifle Coffee about this or that or whatever. And, and you know, I really took the lead a lot of that from, from Evan with our company. You know, we're only two years old this week. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're, we're getting into the, you know, multi-millions of dollars of revenue as far as, like, the size of our company. But we're still, like, spending all that money to grow. Like, we're not, we're not yeah. pocketing much money. Yeah. We're... And frankly, we're doubling down in a very nerve-wracking economy at this moment. Yeah. And, and honestly, I was the guy in 2008, 9, 10. I listened to too much of the news and kind of held back on chasing my dreams. And this time in COVID, I was like, screw that. I'm going. Like, yeah. I'm going. And I just largely ignored it. Um, but in regards to giving back, like last year, in our first year as a full-time knife company, in August, we flew in 20 vets and taught them how to forge for a weekend, paid their way. Um, you know, forging can be, you know, I talked about the uses of steel, yeah. but that doesn't hit on the, the whole, um, therapeutic side of the it. process of it. Yeah. I'll tell you what you, you give a guy that's bored every single night and sitting around watching the news or looking at Instagram and all of a sudden hand him a hammer and a hot piece of steel and he'll hammer out there for three hours and not think about anything else, but what he's hammering on. And we had guys come in, we've, we've got three or four of those guys now are making knives. Wow. And, and the intent was to just provide a great fun weekend for those guys. But I knew there's a couple guys, frankly, I know it changed their life. And yeah. I, I had Joe Maynard there. He was a Black Hawk helicopter pilot. Knife making saved his life. You know, he found it, um, you know, probably seven or eight years ago, found knife making, I had him come talk and teach. Um, you know, the, the forging thing, I, you know, the point is, is we, we are giving back to our community. You yeah. know, and, and we flew those guys in. We put that in. This year, we had a bunch of flooding in Montana, down around Yellowstone Solid, Park, yeah. Gardner. Me and Will Stelter, another knife maker, kind of like Lucas. Will has a pretty big following. He called me up. He's like, you want to collab on a knife? I said, let's do it. And we were thinking about doing T-shirts or something through our company. Will and I built a knife, and we came up with a Come Hell or High Water Flood logo started selling t-shirts for chances to win the knife and we raised $82,000 in a month. Wow. Um, and that's all of our customers supporting what we're doing. But the point is, is when you buy American, yeah. if you're buying from companies that are in your community, they're going to support your community in a, in a tough time. Yeah, You're not just buying a product. You're buying the, all the things they touch. And, and, I, and I've seen it over the years. My kids are all in 4-H. They have 4-H pigs and steers and they go to the fair and Guess what businesses are at the fair buying those animals on Saturday morning? It's not Walmart. Yeah. It's not Target. Yeah. It's, you know, the dude who owns the local little lumber yard and it's the excavation company and the logger and 
it's the local companies, you yeah. know, and it's companies like Montana Knife Company sponsoring, you know, the shoots at the rodeo, stuff like that. It's not Walmart. I know. I, I love, like, we sponsor a Little League team, local Little League team. Yeah. And people are like, you guys got your own Little League team? I'm like, yeah, and we're proud of it. I mean, that's yeah. what we, I want to support local. You know, I want to be yep. a part of that experience. And I, the idea that, like, oh, you're nice, too expensive. It's like, man, what are we, what are we even talking about? Yeah, you know? we're, we're, we are giving back. And, and I think people are seeing that. And, and they're also seeing that they're supporting a company that's growing the right way and supporting what they believe in. And, um, and you're also getting quality. Like I say, I, I, I launched this company based off of my custom quality and a lot of that metallurgy, the ideas behind passing that test. Yeah. I'm now trying to build those knives that would pass that test and, and have people be able to carry those, but at, at a more affordable price. If I tried to hand forge all these, they'd be a thousand bucks. Oh yeah. But yeah, we're laser cutting out blades, but it's out of the right steel. They're being yeah. heat treated the right way, you know, and they're 300 bucks. Yeah. Um, and it is funny in the hunting world, you'll see guys, they'll, they'll spend 250 bucks on a pair of pants and thousand dollars on the rest of their base layers and their coat. And they'll buy a $400 pack and $2,000 bow yeah. and thousand dollar garments, you know, Swarovski scope and all this stuff. And then they'll go buy a $19 knife. Shields. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> and that's it's what so they true. might depend on. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, no, that's, that is a piece of your gear. Yeah. You know? I, I like the idea of investing in tools that are, especially a tool that potentially could save your life. Yeah. Um, it, it's an amazing thing. I, knife companies, there's not a lot of knife companies that are still family owned and operated that, are, that have that kind of reputation. A mm -hmm. lot of them have kind of lost their ways or lost their path because they either got acquired and they, they turned yeah. into something that's no longer small, I guess. It's more corporate. You know, it, it feels that way at least. Yeah. Yeah. Our company, it's me and Brandon. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, Brandon's my business partner. You know, we've got, we've got great employees obviously and stuff, but it's, uh, yeah, it's not. And, and I want this company to be generational. Yeah. You know, your it's boy, not, you think your boys are going to get into it or you're possibly, or my girls, um, we'll, we'll see. Um, yeah, they, they already help now. I mean, there's Instagram videos of, you know, my 12 year old girl writing on all the boxes, you know, labeling what the colors are, the knives are packaging. They all help package um, bead blast blades that he's bead blasted. Um, so, you know, but ultimately that's their decision, what they want to do. I, you yeah. know, I, I'm not going to push for it, but it'd be cool. It's only the coolest knife company in the country. I mean, you have, you, you got to respect that seeing Cam Haynes. He's like, oh, working on it. Knife company. I want to go see that black rifle coffee and that <laughs> field craft survival. <laughs> MKC's cool, man. You're up and coming. What's the, what's the, uh, all you guys' stuff? Where can people find all you, all your stuff? Yeah. Uh, at Montana Knife Company with Instagram. Yeah. Um, and same on Facebook. And then, uh, you know, just Montana Knife Company.com. Yeah. So, yeah. Check us out. And, um, yeah. Appreciate it. And I, I'm just, I'm stoked about where we're headed and I'm stoked about this family that we're building with guys like you and all these other brands, you know, if it's Everly Stock or Sitka or Stone Glacier Packs, I don't, I don't care. Like I, I tell people, I kind of want to be like a Yeti cooler. I want, I want everybody to have, so I don't care what pack you wear, or what gun you shoot. Um, we want to work with a lot of different brands, but I'm most interested in good people. Yeah. Um, some of the people that I've met at some of these brands are amazing. They're big brands, but you know, like at Leupold, yeah, just phenomenal people. Um, I've I've heard great things about like the Sig people. I haven't met them yet. But oh, they're amazing. We need, you need to get in there, man. I mean, having your knife in the Sig 
when you guys scale yeah. the SIG experience and the shops, the pro elite shops, yeah, some of my favorite people. Yeah, no, it's that's what's the best part about this whole thing is meeting a lot of the customers and then a lot of the industry people are just, it's just they're just awesome people. So yeah, I love it. Well, Josh, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. I know you got to, yeah, gotta set up that tent, man. Set up, yeah. So if you so you'll be at. Uh, tack now what's the next event where people can come see you yeah big sky uh you know i'm not sure when this will come out but big sky is next weekend i don't even know my dates i'm kind of getting lost it's the end of, end of Ju- uh, uh july, july here oh i don't even like know. 28th or something or yeah 29th whatever it's that last weekend in july yeah and then you know really after that it's we're kind of rolling hard and heavy towards hunting season yeah and uh yeah we're going to be hunting and, and getting knives out um we don't do a lot of shows i've i've I went to a uh, shot show this last year and just kind of hung out, but yeah, yeah, definitely the social media channels. We're pretty active and engaged with people. So look us up. And as we grow, like for sure, we want to have an events team and go do stuff, but man, it's like one step at a time. Yeah. We we're doing SIG freedom days, October 14th, but you should do something inside of our booth. Like where's this, that? Where's that? At? It's in New Hampshire at the SIG experience, but the last SIG freedom days, there's another one in May, which is in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, North, which is the Anthem, I believe, uh, at Ben Avery's, the shooting range there. Okay. But it's super positive experience. Like, cool, lots of people that are your customer. Yeah. But it'd be cool if, if oh, that'd you guys be rad. up yeah. and running, but we'll figure that out. Cool. Cool, man. I appreciate you. No, thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it. This will come out, guys, in uh, a few weeks when you're watching this. This is for Mike Force Podcast and the Phil Cross Survival Podcast. But um, expect to see this dropping soon. I think we'll do the first run out on Phil Craft's survival stuff, and then the second run on Montana Knife Company stuff. Yeah, we want to want to get that out to your guys' followers first. This is really your guys' knife, and give uh, the Phil Craft people the first crack at it. Yeah, it'd be awesome. Thanks, guys. We'll see you.